back with Paul Bloom. Paul, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me back. This conversation is it's always a break from what I'm normally doing on the podcast, but this week it is a a very stark break because I've been having some very gloomy conversations. I just released one on nuclear war and I just recorded one on this phenomenon that we we euphemistically call child pornography, which if if there's anything more gloomy than nuclear annihilation, it is the details of what is going on in tech around child pornography. I mean, it's just, I haven't released this one yet. This is probably going to drop after we release this podcast. But I mean, the scope of the problem and our apparent unwillingness to actually confront it is just, it's impossible to understand. So anyway, that's where my head has been. No matter how dark you get, you'll be bringing levity to my world. Very few people say that to me. I'm normally kind of a downer conversation-wise. Also, I got views on child pornography, but maybe I'll save that until uh, your thing uh, lets out. We can talk about it a bit more. Yeah, we can talk about it next time. Actually, the the guy I interviewed, Gabriel Dance, he's the uh, New York Times writer who's been covering this in a, in a series of long and harrowing articles. And they just interviewed him on the daily, the New York Times podcast today. So if people want a preview of that, that's going on there. I, mean, I think you know the daily conversation is like 25 minutes, but I think Gabriel and I spent two and a half hours wading into this morass. And it's astonishing that it exists, but it's just what you really can't get your mind around is our lack of motivation to deal with it because we actually can deal with it. I mean, there, there are technological solutions to this. There, there's just, there's obviously a law enforcement solution, but we just, I mean, we're like, we're paralyzed largely around, I think, the fact that. The details are just so dark that nobody wants to focus on it for long enough to, to actually deal with it. it. I mean, it's it's taboo to even think about it. And I don't know, I mean, maybe there are other examples of this kind of thing, but there's just such an ick factor with the topic that that has more or less protected these truly sinister people and, and networks from much scrutiny, much less prosecution. So I, that sounds fascinating. I realized I began this by saying I have views on child pornography and just kind of left that hanging. I think, I think rather than wait a few weeks and, and let Twitter you know, have itself at me, I decided I, I should really clarify. Okay, good save. Which is, yes, which is, you know, I, I have the same views everybody else has about it's, you know, it's morally monstrous to prey on children. But what I would add to this is that there are people who ha- are sexually attracted to children, and I see that as nothing but a curse. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. It is a terrible thing to have. And it is unchosen. Nobody, nobody wakes up and says, you know, oh, I want to really work it so that I could only be attracted sexually to kids. It, it is it's hard to imagine a worse thing to happen to you. Now, that doesn't excuse you morally if you act upon it. It yeah. still, I think, should reframe a little bit how we think about such cases. Yeah, that's actually a point I make at some point in that podcast, because it, you know, if you view pedophilia as a sexual orientation, albeit an illegal and, and unfortunate one. Yes, nobody decides to be a pedophile, but given that the production of child pornography is, in every case, the, the commission of a crime, so you're essentially, that's why the word pornography is a euphemism. I mean, these are just records of, you know, child rapes and tortures. The difference is, this preserves the, the point you were making, it's as though being a heterosexual man is one thing. One doesn't choose it, and it's perfectly legal and 
you know, happy to be one. But if you're a heterosexual man who likes to watch real women get really raped and are participating in a network that engineers the the rape of non-consenting adults, that's a depraved addition to your sexual orientation for which you you can't be held responsible. And just by its very nature, anyone who's consuming child pornography, much less distributing it, is part of that second sadistic phenomenon. And so it's, yeah, but I I completely agree with you. My position on free will commits me to uh, that view, obviously. That's right. And and there's stuff to be, again, this is exciting. I I can't resist. It's just that, that what you describe is plainly evil and monstrous and should be punished. The question of fantasies that hurt nobody, mm. but themselves are violent fantasies, and perhaps involving depictions of acts, which would be terrible if they took place, those, I think, sit in a more complicated place for me. And so we could talk about that at a later time, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This, <laughs> this is, okay, I promise people we will not spend too much time on this because there's, there's a lot to cover, but I don't think I got into this with Gabriel Dance in any completeness. What do you think of, this connects to your point about fantasy, what do you think about purely fictional products of this taboo material, right? So, you know, fictional child pornography, the production of which entailed the rape or mistreatment of no one, that's obviously nearly as taboo as the real stuff yeah. and, and also illegal. This is just, I don't know whether this is true or not, but I, I believe some people suspect that if it were legal, it would, to some degree, satisfy the desires of pedophiles who are otherwise seeking child pornography. I don't know if that's psychologically realistic, but what do you think about the ethics there? I think you're asking the right question. It's plainly icky. And and again, I wouldn't want to be condemned to have that taste. But I think the answer to the question of what I think about that rests on the empirical issue of what its effects are. So if it turns out that these robot sex dolls or just people depicting themselves as children, but they aren't really children, if it turns out that, that men who satisfy themselves over that become less likely to harm real children and it makes the world a better place, then on balance, it seems like a good idea. If it turns out to, to sort of feed their desire and make them want more, it's definitely a bad idea. Yeah. I'd be very mindful of the consequences of this, and I don't know what the consequences are. Right, right. Yeah, you, you've, you've uttered the phrase that was uttered only once on this podcast before, the notion of child sex robots. Kate Darling, who is a, is a robot ethicist at MIT, first introduced me to the, the concept more or less as a, as a fait accompli. The moment we get robots that are truly humanoid, some genius will give us sex robots, and the moment that arrives, some perverse person will give us child-sized sex robots. I hope we avoid the path in the, in the multiverse that is leading toward child sex robots, but I, I suppose if, yeah. if it has the consequentialist effects you hope, then it would be a good thing on balance. And, and it's a good illustration of a contrast, which we always get into when talking about morality, which is your, your considered moral views, which might lead you to an unintuitive claim that child sex robots are a good thing and make the world a better place, and our gut feelings would say, you know, oh, that's disgusting. That's terrible. Someone who creates child sex robots should be strung up. But I think you and I agree, and we'll talk about this, that moral progress involves turning away our ick reactions 
and focusing in a more considered and deliberative way on consequences. Right. Okay, so I see I dragged you uh, kicking and screaming into the land of ick, but what are you thinking about these days? Yeah, let, let, me, let me actually, this, this is actually not incredibly far from it. It's another moral dilemma. By the way, I'm, I'm Paul Bloom. I'm, from, uh, the, I'm a psychology professor at Yale University. And so I was at Cornell University giving a series of talks, and I was at a seminar talking to some students, some, some you know, terrific graduate students and undergraduates. And we ended up talking about research ethics. And somebody brought up the case of this person works in a lab, and he talked about his lab mate, hypothetically. What if she was engaged in re- scientific misconduct of some sort? Maybe any of these examples fairly mild, but it was scientific misconduct. And so, you know, we kind of agreed that he should encourage her to stop doing it and turn herself in, particularly if some data got compromised. But then the question came up, what would happen if she wouldn't, she refused? Mm. And he said, very matter-of-factly, well, then I would turn her in. And everyone's nodding, this makes sense. And, and something about it sat funny with me. And I said, well, what if she was your friend? What if she was a good friend? And the student thought about it and said, no, I'd still turn her in. And I said, what, what if this was, uh, you know, your girlfriend, your partner? What if it was your wife? And, and there was some hesitation, and the conversation got a little bit awkward. And, and I thought of a couple of different things here, but we were talking here about loyalty. Mm-hmm. And, and I had two observations from this, and I kind of want to throw them at you and get your own sense of this. But one is, I worried that my own intuitions were a little bit out of whack, and maybe this is a generational thing. I give loyalty of that sort fairly high value. You know, if my lab, if my best friend was a serial killer, yeah, I, I'd, I'd call the police. But if my best friend was doing stuff which I thought was wrong, but fairly minor, I don't think I would. I think my loyalty would, would, would override my moral obligation. And then this got me to think about how subversive loyalty is. Loyalty pulls you together with your allies, your friends, and your family, and sits uneasy, uneasily with broader moral goals, including a sort of broader utilitarian picture you tend to defend. So I was wondering what you thought about that. And I was also wondering, to make it a bit more personal, you get involved in a lot of controversies and debates, and you're often defending your friends hmm. on Twitter and social media and elsewhere. And it's really easy to defend your friends when you think that they're right. But do you ever defend your friends when you think that they're wrong? Yeah, this is, this is a really interesting topic. And I've been thinking about it lately because it's one of the variables I see in politics that, that leads to such dysfunction. And it's something that, that Trump prizes above everything else. Every one of his abominations seems to be a kind of loyalty test for those around him. The people who will pretend he's not lying or, or pretend he's normal are essentially passing a loyalty test at all times. And I have waxed on forever about how degrading I find that. But I think loyalty is a virtue, obviously, until it isn't, right? So it's one of these, right. one of these virtues that can be kind of bivalent. And I'm not sure what other examples there are. But what's interesting is that so it is kind of parasitic on the notion and experience of friendship. So to say that someone is loyal to a friend or is a loyal friend, it's almost redundant because you know, being a real friend entails some degree of loyalty. That's right. But also family as a second case. Right, right. You know, we're loyal to our children, we're loyal to our parents, to our siblings. Yeah. And then derivative of that, people become loyal to organizations or to, you know, loyalty to your nation That's is, right. you know, is patriotism. 
But I think the edge cases are interesting, and and we reach the edge when you know a friend or a family member or a member of the organization to which we're pledged or our country does something terrible, right? And at that edge, I think being anchored to loyalty as though it were the the moral virtue that trumped all others, I think that clearly is pathological. My country, right or wrong, just becomes blind nationalism if your country is doing something obviously illegal and wrong and counterproductive. You can turn up those dials as high as you want. At some point, you look crazy for supporting your country at any apparent cost. So to speak of groups for a second, is everything I tend to complain about with respect to tribalism and identity politics really just looks like a perversion of loyalty to me. It's just like, you know, if a member of your group is behaving like a psychopath, you should be able to acknowledge that. And if you can't acknowledge it because you have a different set of ethical books you're keeping for people in your group than from people outside your group, well, then that is tribalism or identity politics. And it's obvious that can't be a foundation for universal ethics, right? Right. To be universal, you have to be able to triangulate on, on something that's happening within your group and judge it by a standard, you know, certainly the standard you would apply outside your group, and that erodes loyalty. The same argument applies, though, for friends. And for friends, it's more complicated. For friends, I think there's more of a pull for loyalty. The bar just gets higher for the The, the bar gets higher. Yeah. And, cer- and certainly for your child. You know, I would do all sorts of things for my child. Would I, I don't know, if my child murdered somebody, would I lie to get him off so he doesn't go to prison? That's a toughie, you know? Would I, and there was a movie having this theme, would I murder another child to take away that child's organs to save my own child? Probably not. My preference ends somewhere. Again, it's, it comes down to mitigating harm for me. So let's take it back from the, the far extreme. If you have someone, if you have a friend who's doing something objectively wrong, I, you know, we can use the scientific misconduct case, or it just depends on what you mean by misconduct. But your loyalty to the friend should translate into a commitment to their well-being, right? And so mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're doing something wrong, that you think they should stop doing, on some level, you view it as bad for them, too. I mean, it's making them, at minimum, it's making them a worse person, right? Or revealing them to be worse than you you wish they were. If you want to improve them in some way, if you want to improve their ethics, if you want to bring them into compliance with intellectual standards you think they should share in the, in the scientific case, well, then you're, you're urging them to stop and correct their misdeeds based on a concern for them, at least in part, it seems to me. Right. There are cases where it could conveniently line up that way, where the most loyal act is also the act that is the best for the community and the best as a whole. But I think we got to agree that there are some cases where they really diverge. Yeah. Well, so then the question is, what are the real motives and the real consequences of the transgression? So, I mean, I could imagine a murder which, while illegal because it's a murder, could still be viewed as ethical or close enough to ethical or ethically gray enough such that it's not clear that you even think they did the wrong thing, right? So then the question is, you know, you're helping them to conceal it or you're not turning them in. That becomes much easier to think about than if you think this person who was who's a friend of yours did something completely insane yeah, and sadistic and right. poses a further danger to society, right? That's right. Well, I, you know, we might get on to talk about Richard Dawkins' recent adventure on Twitter, 
Yep. And, 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 but put aside exactly what happened. I imagine, I, I, I admire Dawkins a lot, but I don't know him personally. I, I think you do know him personally. Let's say, hypoth hypothetically, you'll view him as a friend. But suppose you thought he was really on the wrong side of it. Mm. You might, I might imagine you might, you know, at minimum, not be vocal about that. If it, if it was somebody you didn't like, you might sort of announce it and say, this is really irrational and, and immoral. But if it's somebody you like, you'd say, ah, I'm sure, I'm sure he was well-intentioned, everybody makes a mistake, or you might just be silent. And, and I think that's actually the right way to go. I think that, that as his friend, you have some burden of, you should treat him in a different way you would treat anybody else. Yeah, I understand that. And I think by default, I fall into that pattern. I do think that being more and more ethical and compassionate would certainly wouldn't require that you it wouldn't require that you treat your friends worse but it does require that you treat strangers more and more like friends i think so you know i am increasingly suspicious of the impulse to dunk on somebody who i yeah who i consider an enemy or at least somebody who's worked very hard to make themselves my enemy and i do look for opportunities to do the opposite i mean so for instance Ezra Klein I forget what his perch at Vox is now. He's one of the founders of Vox. He's no longer the editor-in-chief. But, I mean, he's somebody who I do think has treated me terribly and never apologized. To the contrary, he's actually someone who just simply can't see that he's treated me unethically and dishonestly and actually done considerable harm to my reputation. These just strike me as objective facts. I mean, when I get outside of my reaction to them, but recently I saw, you know, he just released a book and there was a, um, an excerpt from it in, I think it was the New York Times. It was an op-ed there, might have been the Washington Post. And I read it and thought it was, it was very useful. I mean, I thought there was just yeah. some great political analysis in there. And so on Twitter, I, with the caveat that we disagree about many things, I circulated that as, you know, a great piece of political insider. I forget how I phrased it. But basically just pure praise while just... Uh -huh telegraphing that I hadn't completely lost my mind and forgotten, you know, how much blood there was under the bridge for us. So, first of all, that feels much better to me. That's leading me in a much better direction as a person, psychologically, than my endlessly rehearsing all the reasons why I have every right to despise Ezra Klein. And so, that's one example where it's like, I acknowledge the difference you're describing and so if it's a friend who does something embarrassing, I will, I'm certainly inclined not to add any topspin to the, the bad press they're getting. And if it's somebody who, who is a neutral person or somebody who I have reason already not to like, you know, it's certainly more tempting to give their reputation a, a push toward the brink. But I don't know. I just feel like there's a course correction that I'm looking for more and more in my life, which is leading everything to converge on the standard you seem to be articulating for friends. Right. And I understand that. You and I have had this discussion many times before, and it's a good discussion to have where you're always pushing for impartiality and, and being an optimist about how much of a sort of pure impartial morality we should have. And, you know, I see some of it, but I see so many cases which are kind of zero-sum where, where you, have to, you have A and B, and you have to choose between them. And the, the option of treating everybody the same just isn't available to you.
But I, I, I got to say, I, we, I agree with the general point, which is I am trying very, very hard to be nicer on Twitter. And I am trying to recognize, you know, I think maybe with the exception of Donald Trump, but that, that everybody, you know, these are real people here and nobody's a villain in their own heads and people have had unfortunate lives. And the sort of public shaming, the, the impulse, which I think people, everybody has it. They just have different targets. Hmm. It is an unhealthy and corrosive impulse. So I'm in favor of treating everybody nicer on Twitter and elsewhere. Yeah, I, I think it, it's a hard balance to strike because I think becoming completely anodyne and just not participating in any public criticism of bad actors, I don't think that is the, the sweet spot. At a certain point, you, you have to say something about a phenomenon, especially if your particular take on it is, is underrepresented. And, and when you're talking about somebody like Trump, you know the the only real danger is boring yourself and everyone around you. But I do think the ethics are pretty clear. We have to yeah. figure out how to get this guy out of office. So you want to be critical, and, and you want you don't want to take that away. That's right. But a friend of mine, Owen Flanagan, once got yeah. to ask a question to Dalai Lama. You know, he'll translate. So he asked, and the question was a good question. He said, "If you had had a chance, would you kill Hitler?" And the Dalai Lama was translated, and he thought about it, and he smiled, and he said, and his answer was, yeah, I would kill Hitler, but I wouldn't be angry at him, and I would do it with ritual and grace and kindness. And to some extent, I don't know if sure that's good advice for killing Hitler, but it's pretty good advice for Twitter, which is, if you have to correct somebody, if you find this, this person's wrong, this is an immoral view, you shouldn't take this adolescent glee in it, you shouldn't do it out of anger, you should just, you know, trying to help people. Yeah, I, I totally agree with the anger part, but this also it connects up to something we spoke about. I think we spoke about killing Hitler last time or, or the time before that, and, and it does raise the ethical question of at what age is it appropriate to kill Hitler? Because I mean, if you go back and kill him as a seven-year-old, you do look like a, a moral monster because he's not quite Hitler yet, right? So it's interesting to consider when that would happen. And I think someone should produce a a YouTube animation of the Dalai Lama going back and killing Hitler with ritual and <laughs> without any hatred. That's a cartoon. I'd like I was to thinking that you would imagine like a science paper which has a graph, and the graph is the best time to kill Hitler. <laughs> yeah, from, right. from zero. Hey, we could we could float that as a poll on Twitter or somewhere. I'm sure there would be a bell curve around the yeah. the appropriate age. Yeah, I'll do that. Okay, so back to uh, Dawkins. Yeah, who yes, I do consider a friend, and I did not react one way or the other to his tweet. Maybe I should remind people what the tweet was, though. I went out on Twitter before this recording and asked for questions, and this came up, as you might expect, a few times. So it was a series of tweets, I believe, to, forgive me if this is somebody else's summary, but it's, it's one thing to deplore eugenics on ideological, political, or moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Now, if... <laughs> I mean, this is kind of hilarious because this really is, I can immediately understand the spirit in which he tweeted it. I'm not sure what the proximate cause of him deciding to screw up his day and week this way was, but... Can we agree he's very bad at Twitter? <laughs> but this is, what's hilarious about this is just, it really is, you take one look at it, having been around and around the block with this kind of thing, I mean, this is just poised to explode in the minds of every person on earth who's just waiting for another reason to vilify Richard. Yeah, I don't know what got into his head around this. Do you know what his 
point was, is this point that as biological creatures, our intelligence and creativity and kindness can be shaped through breeding? Or what, what was his point? Well, I think his point might have been a topical and political one. I think there's somebody in, in the press in the UK right now who just got nominated as an advisor to Boris Johnson or something, and then someone did a, a little scandal archaeology in his Twitter feed and found some celebration of eugenics or, or something. And, and so that could have been what Richard was reacting to. Oh, but, I got it. Yeah. But anyway, he's making the obvious point that eugenics is a thing. I mean, forget about that. It's history as a movement among scientists and pseudoscientists, you know, a hundred years ago as the facts of Darwinism and genetics were only starting to be absorbed. It's just obvious that whatever is under genetic control, whether that's the way our physical bodies perform and look or, you know, the way our minds emerge from our brains, basically everything about you is genetically influenced to some degree. You should be able to breed for that or engineer towards some goal in the same way that I think in further tweets, he uses the example of cows giving more milk and all of that. So it's the biology of, of it is not debatable. And that's just his point as a biologist. Like, of course, this kind of thing is possible. And acknowledging its possibility is not at all a suggestion that it's desirable that we institute any kind of program to do this. So he was just separating the, you know, people's political and moral reaction to the idea based on presumably some notion of what its social consequences were originally and would be in the future and separating that from, from this claim that it wouldn't work in practice. I'm not sure what, which claim he was responding to there. But. Yeah. Out of context, it was weird. I mean, I, I, like I said, I don't know him. I'm a, I'm a huge follower for, of his work, and I think he's, he is, you know, an extraordinary scholar and, and has a lot of interesting to say. I, I think nobody in their right mind would think that he's really defending eugenics. It's a, it's a you know, a comically unfair take on this. But as somebody pointed out, the very structure of what he said is, it, it's the same structure as, you know, it would be wrong to burn down Paul Bloom's house on moral grounds, on political grounds, on you know, ideological grounds. But, you know, if you had enough gasoline and enough tinder, yeah, you can burn it down. And, it's, right. and, and it, it, it has this sort of taunting, trollish claim. And I, I'm totally accepting that, that, that it wasn't intentional. And I think it probably speaks to the idea Twitter is the wrong arena for these sorts of comments. Let me uh, take the opportunity to get us into more trouble than Dawkins got into. Don't we practice eugenics on some level anyway? And aren't we destined to practice it more and more the more we understand the genome and can edit it? Aren't we already doing this on some level? And just to take mate selection, if you're looking for someone at least as desirable as you are to mate with, whether you're thinking about it or not, aren't you instantiating some kind of eugenic program? Yeah, Jeffrey Miller made a similar point, I think, in a comment on us. I think, I, I apologize if I get it wrong, but I think he called mate selection intuitive eugenics. Mm. I think I see the analogy, but it really stretches the use of the word. I mean, in some way, yeah, if you're looking for somebody who's good looking and smart, and you're good looking and smart, you, you've upped the odds of having good looking and smart kids. But there's no intentional eugenic program to populate the world with 
beautiful and smart kids. Okay. In fact, natural, the dictates of natural selection are kind of anti-eugenics because eugenics is a program for how you want society to be. While our appetites put into us through natural selection are rather selfish. They're just how you want your kids to be. You know, there's no point actually in having smart, pretty kids if everybody's smart and pretty. So I see the analogy because there's some sort of selection and selection is part of eugenics. But eugenics, as we commonly use the term, requires some degree of state control. It involves coercion. It involves broader goals. And I think to link up sexual desires and how you want your kids to be is just so far away from eugenics, it doesn't seem like a, a natural continuation of the concept. Okay, well, let me get it closer. What if we discover that you put a, um, a harmless B vitamin or some analogous compound into the milk supply, and that you know, raises IQ for everyone by five points? And so any society that decides not to do that because they don't want to be in any way eugenicist, I guess you have to imagine something that actually gets into the germline and is beneficial for people, so to make it a proper eugenic argument. Yeah. But some harmless addition to our food supply that nudges everyone statistically in some unambiguously desirable direction, and whether it cuts down on peanut allergies or it boosts intelligence or it makes people two inches taller, that might even be more of a superficial-seeming preference that I still think most people would tend to want. Although it probably makes the world worse in all sorts of ways. If, people were, if, if everybody got smaller, <laughs> everything would be easier. Fewer right. resources. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, how easy, yeah. let's, Wait, let's, go on. Let's, let's leave aside your bigotry against tall people. And uh, <laughs> how, how, how I'll, tall are I'll, you? I'll own that. How tall are you, Paul? I'm 6'1". Okay. Well, so you, you, I, yeah, you, I'm, you're I'm a, self-hating, actually. I'm a self-hating tall person. Right, okay. Well, as someone who's 5'9", I, um, I will double down on your bigotry. <laughs> okay. We wouldn't want that. But what do you think about that? I mean, it's, clearly there's, there would be a similarly programmatic desire to change society, but like to decide not to do this is also to make a decision. I mean, once the intervention becomes available and becomes affordable and you, you know, as the, the ruler of Bhutan or, or wherever you are where you, you can make this decision for everyone around you, when you decide not to do this, you're deciding just as emphatically to put your society on, on a course as a ruler or a democracy that would decide on using the intervention. I am all for these interventions. I mean, and, and in fact, this isn't science fiction. I'm all for removing lead paint and lead toxins exactly, from yep. playgrounds and schools better nutrition for, for pregnant women and for, for breastfeeding women, smaller class sizes. Now in America, pregnant women take supplements that are, are hopefully, you know, reduce neural dose of neural tube deep Yeah, yeah, deficits. folate. Yeah. So all of, that, all, of that's, yeah, all of that's great. I, I, it does seem like a little bit of sort of mischievous wordplay to call it eugenics. I mean, it's true if you take eugenics as anything with the eye towards making everybody's life better or making everybody else, everybody's sort of biology better, then getting rid of lead paint is eugenics. But it's like one of these discussions we could have with a libertarian who, you know, tries to convince you that, you know, income taxes, slavery. Like, yeah, in some abstract sense, I could see it, but you've gone so far away from the core of the concept. And what you don't want to do is to say, well, you know, getting rid of lead paint is good, and that's eugenics, so maybe eugenics isn't that bad. 
eugenics becomes truly despicable when you talk about forced sterilization of people or not letting people reproduce where there's obvious coercion. But if you, and this is where progress in technology can cause certain moral problems to evaporate, yet strangely kind of maintain us on the path that previously seemed starkly evil. So just imagine we're in the world where the evil mustache twirling eugenicist, if they only had the power, wouldn't let certain people breed. Mm -hmm. But you get the right genetic intervention. Now the choice is not whether or not they can breed. It's just you have to take this pill if you want to breed because it's going to have all of these benefits for your kid. And you would be actually unethical as a parent not to confer these benefits. And yeah. again, it's not giving people blonde hair and blue eyes. It's like deaf parents not having deaf children, for instance. Yeah. Right? It seems to me that if you're deaf and you want to have kids, this is a real problem, although I, I haven't actually confronted the literature on this, but I've heard rumors that this is a problem, that there are many, that there are deaf parents or aspiring parents who want to be free to make the choice to have deaf kids or to not let their deaf kids get cochlear implants or you know, become hearing enabled for various reasons. That seems to me to be a um, not being deaf. I can only imagine how one would arrive at that point of view, but it seems to me pretty clear cut that to consciously deprive your child of hearing is unethical. The deaf case is complicated. And, and this comes into the fact that there are legitimate disagreements over what counts as flourishing in certain ways. And deaf cases is, is an interesting case. Another case is a circumcision. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's not, getting less and less complicated, I think, for, for many of us. It just seems like, it just seems unnecessary. And, and therefore, I was happy not to have to confront this, having girls rather than boys, but it just seems like a, I'm sure you know Hitch's take on this. You know, it's just, if you start from scratch and just imagine inventing this practice now, it's quite insane, right? So, yeah. so why be committed to it just based on what your, your ancestors did? It seems like something we could quite easily retire. I think we could argue a lot on the margins and on all these cases, and we would have similar intuitions. But I agree with the main point, which is if there are, are things available that could lead to things which are kind of unambiguously good for children, it is irresponsible for parents not to take advantage of them. And in some cases, the state should be able to coerce parents to take advantage of them. I mean, and, and this is not, this might, might sound all kind of brave new world and science fiction-y, but of course, if you, you know, if you raise your kid in a closet and don't feed him properly and don't bring him to school and, and you know, violently beat him, you know, the police will come and take away your kid and give it to somebody who could raise him better. We, don't, we do not have unlimited latitude over what we can do with our kids. And if there's things to do that can make your kid flourish that are available and you don't avail yourself of, of them, unless you have some sort of strong argument, and, you know, there's a lot of debate over the extent to which religion is such an argument, you are abusing your kid and you should be, you should be stopped. So then why is the deaf case a difficult one? The deaf case is a difficult one because it rests on some empirical claims over the effectiveness of these implants and, and arguments that kids who are, who, some of the kids who get the implants never learn to understand spoken language properly, and, but at the same time become alienated from a signed community. I wasn't aware of that 
wrinkle. So let, let's leave that aside and just and, take and then, the extreme and so, case. So, so the one you're thinking of is more of a cultural argument where, you know, the deaf, deaf people are people in some communities, the United States, not only united by a common deficit, but also a culture. And they may want the kid, not their child, not to be hearing because they want the kid to be part of that culture. Right. But in the case of where you get a choice to, I mean, let's say you're a deaf couple practicing in vitro fertilization, mm-hmm. and you can choose to implant the embryo of a child who will be you know, either deaf or hearing. Implanting the embryo that's guaranteed to produce a deaf child, that seems, when you have the, an easy choice to produce a hearing one, that seems like the pure case of a strange ethical choice, even if, you know, uh, I'll take it for granted that your deaf child who is destined to always be deaf will integrate more fully into deaf culture than a hearing child will. It just does seem like a, I don't know, a selfish choice, and therefore a less ethical one. I also find it, it's not a choice I would make. It's not a choice I would approve of. I'll just put myself down as I don't know. Hmm. I, and, and, and there's, on the one hand, you know, I might agree with you. I think that's the wrong choice. But I'm not sure that my intuition is so strong that I should think that deaf parents should be legally forbidden from doing that. Okay, well, I'm sure we pissed somebody off. I'm not sure. No, I'm... Somebody. <laughs> yes, yes. But um, it would be interesting for someone to direct us to the, the most compelling defense of this rumored practice. And I guess I'm, I'm less interested in the inadequacy of cochlear implants as being a reason why not, because that, you know, obviously that muddies the water, but just yeah. why this wouldn't be starkly unethical to consciously deprive a new person of a core sense for their imagined cultural benefit. Okay, so pivoting to, as you know, I've gone out on Twitter asking for questions several times here. We never get to them, so now we're going to get to at least one. And actually, you just mentioned him, Jeffrey Miller, the evolutionary psychologist, asked you last time around, Paul has been critical of empathy as a foundation for altruism. What are some better psychological hacks we can use to feel more of a gut-level concern for future generations and to reduce existential risks? What he's flagging here, which is something that I often worry about, is we really do not have an appropriate emotional response to the scariest data, and therefore we're not motivated to solve the biggest problems, especially problems that have a long time horizon. So you know, yep. existential risk is this you know, now term of jargon to cover this whole category of things like nuclear war and asteroid impact and global pandemic and climate change and anything that could cancel all or most of us. AI is now in that category. Yep. Yeah. I'm not, I remember you giving a talk where you talked about the AI risk. And I think you began with something like, look, part of the prompt AI risk is not only doesn't it scare us and bother us, it seems kind of cool. You know, right. it's kind of yeah. fun. It's fun to think about, yeah. So, so Jeffrey Miller's right. I'm very critical of empathy, particularly in exactly these cases. Empathy resonates to problems with, with specific victims, with people you know in trouble, with expressions of pain in the here and now. And it is astoundingly silent over crises that don't have identifiable victims. It's, it's also silent over crises that don't have identifiable villains. One of the reasons why I think climate change, it's so difficult for people to get moved by climate change, 
or moved by all of these other things you're listing is it doesn't involve foreign people who want to kill us. When it comes mm. to foreign people who want to kill us, that gets us going. That, that you know, 9-11, Pearl Harbor, attacks on us by other people, enrages us and triggers our moral feelings and motivates us like nothing else. But some, some you know, some nerd giving a TED Talk explaining how the world is going to end in about 50 years, well, you're not the nerd, by the way, so mm. just and, and, any it's nerd. But, as long as I'm not tall. <laughs> that's right. That's the worst combination. <laughs> it leaves us cold. And existential threats, for whatever reason, don't, don't move us. So how do we make it so that they, they move us? I guess I'm very skeptical that there's some way to engineer, engineer these crises so that at a gut level, they really speak to us. It, for one thing, it's very cynical. It's like we know that they're problems. No one else does. So now we have to package them in a certain way to trigger people's emotions because they aren't sensitive to the same reasonable arguments that move us. I think the problem's probably deeper than that, though. It's just that even we are not moved in the way that we would be moved yeah. if a, you know, a little girl fell down a well, because that just naturally pulls all of the attentional and emotional strings such that we just can't look away. But, you know, you tell me that 700,000 people are at risk of famine right now in Somalia. Well, you know, I'll spend exactly four seconds thinking over... Yeah. How unhappy that fact is, and then wonder what's for lunch. It's a problem with our psychological and moral hardware, even among those of us who know that it's a bug and actually spend a fair amount of time worrying about and focusing on big long term problems. They still don't have the emotional resonance. So, I mean, can you think of a, a way to actually hack your own mind here and more effortlessly pay attention to things that are worthy of your attention? So I'll just first step back and saying the problem you're outlining is a really old one. Adam Smith had the best articulation of it in his mm. book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, like 300, 400 years ago, where he said, imagine 100 million people dying in a far off land. And you go, ah, that's horrible. That's terrible. And then you go about your business. But then he said, imagine you were to learn you're going to lose your little finger tomorrow. You wouldn't yeah. sleep that night. It would upset you. And the smartest person in the world is still like you're pointing out, is, 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 is vulnerable to this huge bias to take yourself so much more seriously than distant people. I think the answer to this, and this is going to be vague and not specific, but it's, it's the direction to point things, is it's not the sort of thing individual people can do well. It, it is not possible to hack your mind so that 100 million people far away will matter to you more than the life of your child. But what we can do is we can form communities. We could form communities of people, some who are disinterested, some who are very engaged in the topics, and work together in sort of constrained ways to solve problems. Okay, that sounds incredibly abstract, but here's a way to make it. Here's an example. There apparently is a field called disaster theory. And disaster theory, people studying this are very interested in why we respond to different disasters over another. And it's just what you'd expect. We respond to them if the people are the same skin color as we are, if there's adorable pictures of adorable children, if they are in our country, if they are our political friends, and so on. But people in this framework often suggest, and sometimes this is actually instantiated, groups, committees working together and setting up like threshold, numerical thresholds, saying if over 5,000 people die, no matter what your skin color, no matter how far away, we have to do this. 
If there is a projection right. of a of a ten percent increase in this disease, that triggers a process, and you set up. And this is very, um, very unromantic. You set up bureaucracies and procedures and 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 you know checklists designed to solve crises. You could imagine some sort of group of people, hopefully with a lot of power, who take this problem in abstract and say, "Listen in abstract. Deal with what should we be? What should we take as important?" And set up rules and procedures such that if there's credible concerns about coronavirus or the next AI out of Google, it will trigger a response, whether individuals think it's a warranted response or not. Mm. Yeah, actually, I realize I've done something like that for myself, just in allocating money to charity. I I decided at one point I was I I did a podcast with the moral philosopher Will McCaskill, Mm -hmm. who's one of the patriarchs of the effective altruism movement. And when you just go down the list of charities that are considered to be the most effective at mitigating human suffering and death, you know, they're highly unsexy causes. Yeah. At the time, and it still is, I believe, number one, you can check this out on uh, givewell.org, was the Against Malaria Foundation that just hands out bed nets to families in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, malarial deaths used to be around, I think, two and a half million people a year, and now it's down to something like 600,000. So you know, like something like two million people a year are now being saved yeah. from untimely deaths. And, and most of the people who die from malaria are kids and pregnant mothers. It's just an objectively awful thing that it's not nearly as, you know, easy to get sentimental over malaria and, and motivated by it as it is around some other things like, I don't know, something that, that moves me a lot is the work at St. Jude's around pediatric cancer. I mean, you watch those videos yeah. and it's just, how can you not support that work? But I think any objective calculus w- would suggest that a dollar going to the Against Malaria Foundation is better spent. Certainly, according to GiveWell, that's the case. So anyway, I just realized that I couldn't rely on myself to get up every day or every week or even every year and care about malaria more than anything else. I just decided to automate my giving to that foundation so that I just know it's happening every month, whether or not I feel one way or the other about it. And on some level, that's what our laws and our institutions and our tax codes need to do. We just need to figure out what is wise in advance based on reason and have that clockwork operate at a layer that is above or beneath our sentimentality. That seems exactly right. It seems like if you are responding to a crisis when it happens, you're already too late. What you should have done is a year ago, think about in, in, when, when you're not worried at all, when, mm-hmm. when you're not getting these frantic messages about coronavirus ending the world, when you're not you know, hearing about the robot attack, when you're calm and in some way disinterested, then you set things in place. Then you make your plans. Yeah. And this is the opposite of how many people do it. But I don't know. I, I, I think that this, the effective altruism movement, the, the, a lot of the movements we're talking about are actually gaining steam in part because there's a sort of cultural change in how to think about being a good person. Okay. So another question here, we've, we've gotten at least two of them. What do we think about Bloomberg and his apparent effort to um, buy the Democratic <laughs> nomination? The Democratic Party, it seems to me, is rending itself over what is largely judged to be a um, 
an unethical way to become the nominee, which is yeah. you, you earn $60 billion in some way and um, then have you know, unlimited resources to buy ads. And I, sh- I should say, before we say anything on this topic, we're speaking before the Democratic debate in Las Vegas. We don't have the benefit of seeing how Bloomberg performs in his first debate. I mean, he really could completely flame out tonight or he could acquit himself well or, or anything in between. But we may discover there was a, there's been a reason why he hasn't been campaigning all this time when we see him on stage tonight. So anyway, what's your feeling about Bloomberg? Well, your summary fit a lot of my assessment. So first, I will vote for Bloomberg over Trump easily if Bloomberg wins the nomination. I think Bloomberg is, is awful in many ways. I think he, he has a very strong authoritarian streak. I think in many of the worst ways he resembles Trump. But he is in many ways a rational actor. To what end do his authoritarian tendencies incline him? I mean, what I imagine about him is that he's basically sane and ethical and, and I mean, he's super philanthropic. I mean, he gives a ton of money away to good causes. I mean, I guess the cynical take on that is he was you know, papering his political nest for a long while in anticipation of just this moment. But you know, he's the anti-Trump in the sense that Trump is someone who pretended to give money away and in fact took credit for donations he never made and misdirected what purported to be philanthropic donations to his own profitable ends. He's basically Satan when you talk about you know, the philanthropic yeah. impulse, whereas Bloomberg legitimately has supported to the tune of billions of dollars, utterly blameless and inspiring causes. You know, this yeah. is an aside, but in our, in our series of podcasts, Sam, at some point, I'm going to get you to say something nice about Trump. <laughs> okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I will surprise you. Yeah, we can, we can do that. I, I but... just, I'm just waiting for that yeah, moment okay. of shock. Yeah. So I, I, you, you are right. Bloomberg, Bloomberg, among other things, cares about things other than himself. Mm-hmm. He seems to, with all of the good and bad this implies, care about, care about law and order. Right. So, you know, which, which has a real ugly side. I think the stop and frisk it, to many people, is, including me, has that ugly side to it. He has an interest in surveillance. He's much increased the surveillance state in supporting the police, in making New York safer. And there's a lot of good and a lot of bad in it. But, you know, everything from he, he doesn't personally, he didn't personally gain from, you know, his crusade to make New Yorkers drink fewer sugary drinks. He just right. felt they shouldn't be drinking this stuff. It's not good for them. Let's make it harder for them. And right. that's a certain impulse. And it's, it's, it's not an evil impulse, but, but there is this authoritarian streak. And then I just want to go back to what you said before, which is if anybody, if, if, if he gets far in this election, he's already gotten very far, he will have done so simply by buying his way in. It's, it's the ad buys for one thing, but it's also the fact that he gives people a lot of money and then predictably enough, these people say, uh, I'm supporting him. But, it, but it's not merely money because you know, there's another billionaire attempting to buy his way in, you know, Tom Steyer, yeah. and he's getting exactly nowhere. I mean, spending hundreds of millions of dollars on ads is not enough, right? I mean, yes. so Bloomberg has a real track record politically, you know, having run what's arguably the most important city on earth. And I don't know what it would be as a country if you did the math on its economy, but it's probably, I'm just guessing, you know, the 15th most important country. And uh, it's probably better than that intellectually and culturally. So it's not clear to me that buying it with money you earned in some relatively benign way is any worse than having to raise the money from other people and therefore becoming beholden to 
all of these special interests that everyone is bemoaning. You have someone who's a billionaire who really cannot be bought by anyone because he doesn't need any resources from anyone. Isn't that at least as good, if not better, than being someone who has to have your hand out more or less every political cycle just to ensure that you still have a job? Well, there's two things. I mean, take Trump as an example. Trump is a billionaire who would seem to be as such without any need. Not quite. He's, I mean, he's probably a fake billionaire. I mean, he may be a billionaire now, but the fact that we haven't seen his tax returns means there's something he doesn't want us to see in those tax returns. But but Trump is, by, by all normal standards, quite wealthy. There's definitely a reasonable suspicion that the only reason why he's solvent is because he has laundered so much money from Russian oligarchs. And so it really is the sense that he isn't truly independent. He's so avaricious, he's so obviously desperate to keep earning money that he's not the benign billionaire who clearly has enough. Yeah. His decisions are at every point advertising his cupidity. Yes. So that, that's what's so objectionable. I mean, if he were a legit billionaire, I mean, if he were Mark Zuckerberg, I think he would show up differently. That's essentially one of the differences between him and Bloomberg. Bloomberg is, whatever his greed may or may not be, he doesn't seem like he needs to be motivated by money on any level, whereas Trump is always advertising and has been from the moment we heard his name 30 years ago, that money, perhaps second only to fame, is the only thing he cares about. So two things. One thing is my complaint about Bloomberg wasn't so much that he hasn't sort of raised money in traditional ways. It's more that he's, he is, to some extent, just paying off people to support him. And this isn't something that other candidates, wherever they get their money, have been doing. And, and he, he does it, Bloomberg's done it because done he's been doing it for a long time. He's been setting the stage for this a long time. I mean, the second thing is you raise two alternatives. One alternative is you're a billionaire and you have your own money. The second alternative is you get large sums of money from special interest groups and then you're beholden to them because that's the way it works. Hmm. But there is to some extent, and I'm going to sound all sort of starry-eyed, but, but some politicians, and Bernie Sanders to some degree has done this, actually make money by getting very small contributions from a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that, that does put you in a different spot, although it, I guess I would argue that it then makes you especially exposed to the mere sentiments of the mob, right? I mean, that, like, if the people you, who've been giving you those $18 donations are the people who are howling for the heads of billionaires or you know various celebrities who get caught in some indiscretion or another, whatever it is, if you're constantly essentially poll testing your positions because you require that, that a majority of the people who've been supporting you keep supporting you, then you're just a, another sort of puppet. I guess, but when the money is spread out that much, then your desire to satisfy your donors just folds into your desire to satisfy the electorate in general. And then right. you're just a politician in general. So, right. so if it turns out because of the way he got his money, Bernie's going to have to act so as to make it so that a majority of people will approve of the direction he's going, well, then he is in that regard like any other politician who has to get voted in. Yeah, although I, I guess he's just so far left that you know, the majority of people he's pleasing with his various utterances it's certainly not mainstream America. I mean, the problem with him, I, I really do think he's unelectable. I think wearing the badge of socialism, even if you call it democratic socialism, without any important caveat, 
I think it's just a non-starter. I mean, it's just the election will be, honestly or not, it will be framed as a contest between capitalism and socialism. And uh, I don't see how socialism wins there, even if framed another way, people would agree they want all kinds of social programs that are best summarized by the term socialism. I just think it may not make a lot of sense, but the class warfare that he seems eager to initiate in demonizing billionaires, basically saying that there's no ethical way to become a billionaire. I mean, one, it's just not true. I mean, in the last podcast, you and I spoke for a while about J.K. Rowling. I mean, you know, I don't think there's anyone who thinks that J.K. Rowling got there by um, fraud or some unethical practice. And yet, people like Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren explicitly, and, you know, like, and, and anyone who, who is really avidly supporting them, seems to think that that's the case. You don't have to deny the problem of wealth inequality to admit that some people get fantastically wealthy because they create a lot of value that other people want to pay them for. And that a system that incentivizes that is better than what we saw at any point under real socialism in uh, you know, the Soviet Union. I just think this is a dead end politically that Bernie's gotten himself into, where he's pitching this purely in terms of kind of an, an anti-capitalist and certainly anti-wealth message. Well, remember, the country is perfectly bifurcated, and roughly half are going to vote for a Republican, whoever the Republican is. Roughly half are going to vote for a Democrat, whoever the Democrat is. And it's, it's true that if you, that a lot of Americans find idea of socialism repugnant and capitalism wondrous. But I'm not sure how many of those were going to vote for the Democrat in the first place. Again, to truly tip the scales, we have to get those people who voted for Obama twice and then voted for Trump to swing back to sanity. And I just think with Sanders, a lot of people just not show up. I mean, I just think a lot of people say, well, what's the point in voting? I can't imagine Trump being president again, and I can't imagine Sanders being president. So I'm just going to kind of opt out. I feel like many people will fall into that bucket. So what, so what do you think the prospects if it was Bloomberg? I think that is the main argument for Bloomberg, that he arguably stands the best chance of winning. And again, I, now I say this prior to seeing his performance tonight in this first debate that he's going to be in. And, and again, I haven't seen a lot of him on stage, but I've never gotten the sense that he's a great or even good speaker extemporaneously. And he, he's certainly capable of saying some fairly wacky things. I mean, there are interviews with him not admitting that China is run by an authoritarian system of government, or he can get his back against the wall and then stammer something frankly crazy. So not, not knowing how he's going to perform, but if he just gets a, you know, a B minus he stands a better chance than anyone of beating Trump, just given you know the economics of it. Well, Trump does already have a nickname for him. I think he's a little so, Mike. or mi mini Mike. Yeah, mini um, Mike. That's right. You think yeah. it's a temporary nickname? Well, I just don't think it works on anyone who is persuadable. Because the truth is, anyone who pays attention to this for five minutes realizes that Bloomberg probably couldn't estimate his wealth accurately within a margin of all the money Trump has ever made in his life, right? So it's just, there's absolutely no contest in terms of who is the legitimate businessman, legitimate billionaire, the person who actually knows how the world works. And people can sense that. 
how that could, might be exploited in actual debate on stage will be interesting. But I mean, the truth is, Trump has always been a laughing stock, even among real estate developers in New York. He's never been viewed as a great businessman. He's just been branded as one on a reality show for 14 years. And he managed to sell this confection to half of America. But I'm sure Bloomberg can find some clever way of prying the lid up on that. And I mean, you know, Bloomberg can release his own tax returns and say, mm-hmm. you know, where, where are your tax returns, rich guy? And I think that could be devastating on stage if Bloomberg can be competent on stage, which remains to be seen. So a few episodes ago, I mean, last, anyway, we, we talked about, you mentioned the scenario of, of there being tapes of Trump using racial epithets to describe black people. And racism has always been, to some extent, part of his brand. Hmm. Both Bloomberg and Sanders are Jewish. Do you think if one of them is a nominee, I'm not even going to ask if this is going to be a thing because it is going to be a thing. And the question is, how blatant will it be? Do you think that there'll be sort of open, pretty much not even dog whistles, but open anti-Semitic attacks by Trump? Concerns about dual loyalties, concerns about, about not being real Americans? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it's true. And it's also, I mean, it's, you also take, you know, Buttigieg as a candidate. I mean, he's somebody who I think he would stand a better chance than Sanders of actually winning if he became the candidate. But, you know, whether or not America is ready for a gay president, yeah. it's not a plus, right? He's going to lose some votes. The question is, how many? So it's, it's the world's worst Twitter poll. But is America more ready for a gay president or a Jewish president? I'm, I'm assuming that the answer is probably Jewish, but yeah, I don't that's know. That's where I put my money to. Yeah. But I actually, I do feel like we've reached a tipping point with gay rights and gay marriage where it's, I mean, I, again, I could just be speaking from within my bubble on the coast, but... Um, None of your friends disapprove of gay people. Exactly, yeah. Anyone who's, who could conceivably say that they could never vote for a gay man as president, I think that person is just by definition someone who was never going to vote for the Democrat under any circumstances. That, that's, so. That could be fair enough. Yeah. That seems right. That seems right. Yeah. So, so we aspire to be uh, shorter, but there's always something to talk about. So, um, to be continued, Paul Bloom. To be continued, we have a, we have a lot on our list. I have a lot of questions. Thanks again, Sam. Bye.